Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And as you're turning there, we'll be dismissing our children to our children's class. So uh, any children participating in that can make their way back to the classroom. And our volunteers will be there to greet you and to welcome you this morning. Again, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10 as we're continuing to make our way through the book of Hebrews. uh, Chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. Hebrews 10. 11 through 18. So let me read our passage for us, and then we will, as we do every week, pause to ask for the Lord's help as we come before the truth of his word. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we are thankful for the finished work of Christ that stands in our place for his life that we are celebrating this Christmas season, for the fact that he came and took on flesh and was born and he dwelt among us. We thank you for his life, for his death, for his resurrection. Father, we are only here this morning because of Jesus and what he has done, because of nothing good that we have done, because of nothing good that we deserve. And so, Father, I pray that you would indeed humble us this morning. And we're thankful that because of the finished work of Christ, you have sent your spirit to dwell in us, to awaken us to the glories of Christ, to convict us of sin, to awaken us to the truth of your word. And so, uh, Father, we're simply asking again this week, as we ask every single week, we're asking you to do what you have already promised you will do, which is that you will be at work in us this morning by the power of your spirit through the truth of your word. And that you would change us, that you would reveal more and more the glories of Christ to us, that you would help us to put sin to death in our lives, and that we would look to our only hope in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I ask for your help. I ask that you would be at work in me, allowing me to proclaim the glories of Christ and the truth of your word this morning for the good of your people. And so we pray all this in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. Well, as we arrive here at the middle of Hebrews 10, 
Uh, we've spent ten and a half chapters of a lot of theology of Hebrews talking about the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the supremacy of Jesus over angels, the supremacy of Jesus over Moses, the supremacy of Jesus over any uh, priest who existed under the Old Testament law, the supremacy of Jesus over the sacrificial system. And what we'll find next week as we continue through Hebrews chapter 10 is that an important transition happens in verse 19. Now we're not there this week, but so you know kind of what's going to be happening in Hebrews. This transition in Hebrews 10 moves toward uh, the more practical commands. He's going to, the author of Hebrews is going to bring all the way to this theology that we've been learning about Jesus for 10 and a half chapters and then he's going to bring it down to the practical level and begin to give us commands, tell us what it is that we're supposed to do with all this theology, all of this truth that we have been learning. And so I'm so thankful that we've been able to just slowly take our time meditating on 10 and a half chapters worth of this truth so that when we get to next week, we're going to feel the full weight that God intends us to feel when we get into these commands. But the reason I bring that up is to make us aware that, that the author of Hebrews is bringing his, his theological argument in many ways to a close here in verses 11 through 18. He's, he's concluding all that he's been working up to to this point about the greatness of Jesus. And in particular, he's concluding this section where he's been talking about Jesus as our great high priest who is exceedingly greater than the high priest who existed under the Old Testament law than any of the uh, priests who served under the Old Testament law. And the way he does this, he takes this, this one final angle he's going to show us about the greatness of Christ compared to the Old Testament law and the sacrificial system. He's going to give us this direct comparison and contrast between the work of the priest and the work of Christ, our great high priest. It's a valuable way to learn truth, right? To learn truth by contrast can be a very powerful way to learn things, right? We, we, we often miss just how great something is if we don't have anything to compare it to, right? If we don't have a point of reference, Parents use this method all the time, right? If your kid is being stubborn about some food they don't like and they won't eat their food, what are we typically, what are we tempted to say to them? If you knew what kids around the world uh, would love to eat if they could, but they're starving, if they had a, th a pile of green beans in front of them, they would finish it. You don't know how good you have it, right? We're helping them see how good they have as a father for many years that that rarely works. It doesn't change their taste buds, but right, we, we try it anyway, right? But you, you teach people how good they have it by comparison. In fact, uh, it's the whole point of the Christmas classic, right? Here we are in the Christmas season. It's a wonderful life, which I never watch, but I know the general concept of it. And if I'm ruining the story for you, it's been out for a really long time. So I'm sorry, Okay. So, you know, George Bailey, you know, he, he's on the brink of ending his life because of a set of difficult circumstances that have occurred in his life. And, and, and then all of a sudden this angelic type thing appears and shows him what things in his town would have been like if he had not been around. All the good things that he had done in his town and how he is needed in his town, right? He doesn't know to appreciate his life until he has this contrast to compare it to of what it would have been like had he not 
been around. You see, I think similarly, we're often tempted to take the sacrifice of, of Christ on the cross for granted. And we can forget just how incredible it really is as it stands in contrast to what was occurring under the Old Testament law and under the sacrificial system. And so the author here, at the end of this section in chapter 10, verses 11 through 18, wants us to see that contrast between the greatness of Christ and what he has done compared to the daily work of the priest under the Old Testament law. And so here as he concludes this section, he's going to take us through these four final steps to show us the surpassing greatness and glory of Jesus Christ. These four final steps. And these are the steps we're going to walk through. This is simply going to be our outline this morning. Number one, the ongoing insufficient work of the priest. The ongoing insufficient work of the priest and then step two, we're going to see that Christ finished the work. Christ finished the work. Step three, Christ perfected his people. Christ perfected his people. And then the final step of the argument comes, number four, the testimony of the Holy Spirit. The testimony of the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're going to work through. The ongoing insufficient work of the priest Step two, Christ finished the work. Step three, Christ perfected his people. Step four, the testimony of the Holy Spirit. So let's begin here where the author of Hebrews begins. And let's look at the ongoing insufficient work of the priest. Again, the reason we really need to dig in and understand verse 11 is because this is the contrast that is being set up to what, you know, that's what we're to compare the work of Christ to. So we need to understand what he is talking about because the author is very intentional about the words that he is using in verse 11 to show us this contrast. And what he reminds us of is that the daily work of the priest is a never-ending toil and labor, right? You see that there in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice. The same sacrifices, plural, excuse me. Now, they don't necessarily stand all day because they were required to, though that may be true. Ultimately, they stood all day because there was literally never a chance to take a break, right? You've probably experienced that at some point of your life, whether in a professional job or whether a busy day out. You're just constantly busy, going, 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 and then you finally come home at the end of the day and you sit on your couch and all of a sudden it hits you this is the first time I sat down all day, right? You didn't necessarily consciously choose not to sit down. You were just so busy you never had a chance to, right? This is what's being alluded to here. The priests have so much going on. There is so much to do standing daily at their service, offering repeatedly these same sacrifices over and over and over again. They are constantly on their feet and at work. And I mean, this is a brief verse, verse 11, and it's easy to read over it without taking time to fully comprehend what this was like for the priests who were serving in the temple. So 
So let's take some time to remind ourselves to, to look at exactly what their daily and annual duties would have been like as they served as priests in the temple. Now, up to this point, we have mainly focused on the work of the human great high priest, or not great high priest, but the human high priest, right? That's a singular position under the Old Testament law. And the high priest we've looked at every year had to go into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice. It's something that had to happen every single year, repeatedly, annually. But now this is moving down to just the normal priest, not the high priest, but the everyday priest who had a job to do every single day. And what was that job that they had to do? Well, Exodus 29 tells us that these priests were required every day to offer two lambs on the altar, one in the morning, one in the evening. They offered the lambs on the altar. They were to burn the lambs on the altar. And in fact, these burnt offerings were intended to burn throughout the day. In other words, the fire of the lambs were never intended to go out. So you could really view it as not two separate sacrifices, though it is, but it's more the point that they do it in the morning and they do it in the evening so that there's always on the altar a burning sacrifice. Always. The fire had to continually be going day after day, hour after hour. They had to be sure it was never extinguished. Now, that was just the regular burnt offerings that had to happen every day. And then on the Sabbath, there were an additional two lambs that were offered. So two every day, an additional two. So four total on the Sabbath, always burning on the altar. Continually. So even there, you could, we could stop right there and see the significance, right? They, they had to be sure it was always burning, always sacrificing, always being offered on the altar. It was literally a job that never ended. There was never a point in their day where they could sit back and say, we're done. No, it was an all-day task. The lambs were to burn the entire day. But this, even this, was only a small portion of what the priests were responsible for on a regular basis. As I mentioned, on the Sabbath, there were two additional lambs, or you had the, the special week-long occasions like the Feast of Unleavened Bread. During that week, every single day, they had to offer two bulls, one ram, and seven lambs every single day for a week. Now, I don't hunt. I've heard about people who hunt, who have watched videos about people who have to clean animals. Like, it's a lot of work, right? Two bulls a day, every day. One ram a day, every day. Seven lambs a day, every day for a week. That's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then there's the Feast of the Tabernacle where they start with uh, a number of bulls and they reduce it by one every day. But by the end of the week, they've sacrificed 70 bulls on the altar 70 bulls along with each day of the week doing an additional two rams and 14 lambs on top of the other two they're already doing every day, right? And that's to say nothing of the other special occasions. But even there, even there, in one year, the minimum number of sacrifices, these priests that are being referenced here in verse 11, the minimum number they were offering was this, 113 bulls, 32 rams, and 1,086 lambs. They stand 
repeatedly offering sacrifices without end. And that's to say nothing of the grain offerings that totaled over a ton of flour, over a thousand bottles of oil and wine. And again, that's only the minimum number because there were other one-time special occasions in addition to the reality that the people of God, right? The thousands upon thousands of people who lived in and around Jerusalem, the tens of thousands of people that were required when they sinned to bring a sin offering, a guilt offering. They were required at times to bring peace offerings. It was a never-ending line of sacrifices to be offered. So you see, it's, it's simple to read something like verse 11 and say, yeah, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. But it's another thing to get this seared into our minds, this image that literally it never ended. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice of bulls and lambs and rams over and over and over and over again, never resting, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices every single day. But even so, no matter how many thousands of lambs or dozens of bulls or hundreds of bulls, I should say, over years and years and years, what does verse 11 say? It could never take away sins. No matter how many animals they slaughtered, no, man, no matter how many animals they put on the altar and burned, it could never take away sin. So the author wants us to learn by contrast, but here he's also wanting us to learn by the power of imagery. Right? Images are powerful. This is an image that the author wants us to have in our minds. This never-ending sacrificial system that existed under the Old Testament law. These hundreds of animals, these thousands of animals, this constant preparation and slaughter and burning of animals over and over and over again needs to be, as I said, seared into our minds so that we can see in contrast to that the all-sufficient, once-and-for-all-time work of Jesus Christ. And so that brings us to step two of the argument of the author of Hebrews, where he is going to now show us the glory and the exceeding greatness of the work of Jesus Christ. So let's look at step two. Christ has finished the work. Christ has finished the work. Look there with me at verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. See, it's that glorious word we find in the Bible, that word of contrast, right? The word, but here is the priest, the sacrificial system constantly, every day, every single day, year after year, thousands upon thousands of sacrifices. But when Christ had offered for all time, what? A single sacrifice sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. Remember, the priests were so overwhelmed with the ongoing, never-ending sacrifices that they stood daily, never-ending, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices over and over again. But when Jesus offered up himself as a single sacrifice, he sat down. There was no sacrificial work 
left to be done. As Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Now, had every priest in that moment, right, in that moment when, when Christ gave up his life on the cross, when he gave himself as that final sacrifice, and when he was resurrected from the grave, proving that he had accomplished his victory, if in that moment every priest of Israel had come to faith in Christ, now that is not what happened. But had that happened, right, as it ought to have happened, that the image of the temple would have been one of emptiness. Right? Even though that didn't happen, that's the image we're to have in our minds here, right? That, that in that moment, Christ is the final sacrifice. And so there are no more sacrifices that are needed. All of a sudden, where hundreds, where thousands of bulls and lambs and rams have been offered on the altar year after year after year for thousands upon thousands of years, all of a sudden ceases. There is no more. The flame goes out. There's nothing left but a charred pile of wood and tumbleweed blowing through the place of the altar because there is nothing left to be done. He is the single sacrifice once and for all time because Jesus finished the work which is why the author draws up this clear contrast. The priest stood daily, but Jesus, when he was finished, sat down. Now here's what's even more glorious about this reality, right? If you really think about it for a minute, Jesus is our priest, our great high priest. He offered himself on the altar of the cross, right? He gave up his own life. How did he then sit down? Well, he had to be resurrected, right? He came back to life. He was resurrected from the grave. And then being victorious over sin and death, then he sat down, it says, at the right hand of the Father. Which shows us, by the way, that he is not only our great high priest, he is also our high king. He sat down at the right hand of God, the position of power, right? He finished the work, then he took his seat on his throne, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. He is both priest and king, and he reigns victoriously after his death and his resurrection, waiting, waiting for his victory to come to pass. This is simply referencing what we saw earlier in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. And there the author is quoting Psalm 110, which says, The Father, speaking to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus finished the work. The victory has already been accomplished. Now when it says that he's waiting, right? You see that in verse 13? He's waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. There's no uncertainty here, right? It is a certain victory. It's an inevitable victory that God the Father is going to hand over to the Son and accomplish for him that he may receive the glory for his work on the cross. His enemies will be crushed. Who are his enemies? 
Anyone who stands against his purposes, anyone who stands against the advance of the kingdom of Jesus Christ will be in the last day crushed and he will be victorious. Now, when it says he's waiting, it doesn't mean that Jesus is passive. It doesn't mean that he's not doing anything, right? We just saw a few weeks ago that Jesus right now, this very moment for all who are trusting in him is interceding for us at the father's right hand. He is praying for you right now. He is pleading to the Father for you right now, right? He is actively involved in our lives, sustaining us and keeping us and watching over us. So it does not mean, it does not mean that he is passive and not active. But what it does mean is that he is at peace. He's not wringing his hands wondering, am I going to be victorious? Are we going to win on the last day? No, he can just wait on the outcome that he knows is going to come to pass. He is at peace. And so the work of Christ stands in sharp contrast to that of the priest because when Jesus offered up a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down completing the work and is waiting for the day of his final victory. So even as we read this, right, that Christ has finished the work, that he sat down and he's waiting, he's calling on us to do the same. And this is what I mean by that. What he's saying to us with this imagery, with this truth, is that you and I can rest from everything that we do in our lives to try and earn forgiveness for our sins. Right? Humanity is filled with a guilty conscience. We know that we're guilty. We know that we have sinned. And humanity does all kinds of things to think somehow to earn forgiveness, to make good for the sins that they have committed in their lives. They, they, they try to just do whatever they can to somehow find forgiveness, to deal with the guilt and shame. For some people, they, they move towards substance abuse to try and just put their mind at ease, to forget about the guilt and the shame that they bear for their sinful actions. For others, they may run to entertainment and distraction just so they don't have to think about the guilt that they've had in their lives. For others, they, they, they may seek approval from other people, somehow use social media to medicate and somehow just try and gain the approval of the world. Right? There are all kinds of ways that we do this. Others even intentionally harm themselves, thinking somehow if they can just damage their own bodies, that that will earn forgiveness of some uh, God that they may or may not be believing in or trying to grope for and reach for. Or they think that the more self-defeating they are, they can somehow show just how remorseful they are and just maybe somehow God will forgive them for their sin, right? We do all kinds of things. And even Christians are guilty of this, right? We're guilty of trying to find ways and things we can do to achieve forgiveness from God. But what Hebrews chapter 10 verses 12 and 13 is saying to us is you can stop and sit down and wait because your forgiveness has been achieved in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's done there is nothing more that you can do. 
That's why Jesus sat down, because the work has already been completed. We are called to trust in his finished work, not to, not to try to achieve it ourselves. And this brings us, this is a natural progression then into step three of this argument that Christ has perfected his people. Christ has perfected his people. Now I know you're thinking, well, I simply don't believe you, Jonathan. That sounds like a really strange thing to say because I don't feel perfect. <laughs> I haven't been perfect today or yesterday or the day before that, and I'm right there with you, brothers and sisters. But let's listen to what God's word says to us in verse 14. For by a single offering, again, the contrast, a single offering, there's no more need to do this over and over and over again. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, what in the world is God's word talking about in verse 14? Because if you ask me, if I have to be perfect, right, if that's what, if this truth applies to me and, and, and just at face value, then that's an empty set of people because no one is perfect, right? If we look around, who is it that Jesus has made perfect? I haven't found them yet. Have you? Well, that's not what Jesus is referring to. It's not what God is referring to here in his word. What he says to us is, that he has perfected. What he means is this is something that has happened in the past. This is a past tense word, past tense verb. Jesus has perfected us. But what it means is that he has declared all who trust in him. He has declared us to be righteous. What he has done by his grace and mercy to us when Jesus came and took on flesh, again, it's what we're celebrating here at Christmas. He, he took on flesh. He became a man. And as he lived on this earth for a little over 30 years, he lived a, a life without sin, perfect, spotless, never once lacked faith in his Father, right? He lived perfect in perfect obedience to God the Father. And what God's word tells us is that for all who trust in Christ, he takes that righteous life that he lived and he gives it to you. The theological word for that is imputed. He imputes his righteousness to you. He, he puts his righteousness on you so that when you stand before the judgment seat of God, what he sees when he judges your eternal destination is not your sinful life. What he sees is the perfect, spotless life of the spotless Lamb of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, speaking of Jesus, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So yes, he has justified you. He has declared you to be right with God because of the finished work of Christ. So in that sense, you have been perfected. But here's the astonishing part of verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time 
those who are being sanctified, which means there's still something to be accomplished in our lives. This is the great tension and mystery of the gospel. We have been perfected in Christ, declared to be righteous, the righteous life of Christ given to us, and yet we are still called to pursue holiness and to become more like Jesus and to be sanctified by the power of his Holy Spirit through the truth of his word. Now, to be fair, some people interpret verse 14 to be saying uh, the word sanctified to be referring to set apart. He is, he, uh, we, we are being set apart in terms of uh, being declared to be right with God. And so they don't see it as this ongoing progression of becoming more and more like Jesus as we typically use the word sanctification. But I think the rest of the passage pretty clearly indicates that that's what the author is getting at when he talks about in verse 16 that he's going to put the law in our hearts and write them in our minds that, that, that this is going to be a work within us as we pursue more and more becoming like Jesus. So listen, here's, here's where we have to sit as believers and as Christians based on four, verse 14. And some of you are sitting in different places and need to hear both sides of this this morning. Truth number one, you have already been perfected in Jesus Christ, declared to be righteous. You will be judged as righteous on the day of judgment. And yet at the same time, you are so far from being the holy person God has called you to be. You need to be pursuing sanctification in your life. You are being sanctified by the work of the Spirit, but that comes through the spiritual disciplines of reading your Bible and praying, and fellowshipping with God's people, and having conversations about God's word with other believers. That's what it means to grow in sanctification, to become more and more like Jesus. And you see, we need both of these truths. There are times when I look at my life, and I'm like, there's no way, Jesus, that you could love me. I'm a despicable person. There's no way that I am worthy to be in your presence. And in those days, I have to remember He's declared me righteous. I've been perfected. He's finished the work in my place. And there's other days where I begin to take that for granted and think, well, I'm already forgiven, so it doesn't really, these sins don't matter all that much. No, he says, no, I'm calling you to be like me. You gotta pursue sanctification in your life. In fact, that's the fruit of the gospel, right? Those are the people those are the people who have been perfected. So the evidence of you having been perfected is that you are being sanctified. So how do I know if that's true of me, if I've been perfected in Christ? Am I becoming more and more like Jesus every day? Am I pursuing a likeness to Christ with my life? You see, we can't lie to ourselves and say, I'm good with Jesus if there's no evidence in our life. And this is the tension we have to stand in, but it is a glorious tension because Jesus has finished the work of our redemption and we have been perfected in him. And because of the perfection that he has accomplished, he empowers us by the work of his spirit through the truth of his word to, be, to become more and more like him through his finished work on the cross, not to earn his forgiveness, but because we have already been forgiven in Christ. And then that brings us to this final step, which is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. 
It's as if the author is saying, look, you should already be convinced, but just in case you're not, even verse 15, even the Holy Spirit bears witness, right? He says, just listen up one more time and let me prove it to you. Now, here's what's amazing about verse 15. The author of Hebrews is referring to the Old Testament. He's just quoting from Jeremiah 31, right? He's quoting Jeremiah 31, but what does he say Jeremiah 31 is? It's the testimony of the Holy Spirit. So we talk about it often in this church, but it's just a reminder, and here's one piece of evidence. We say that this, these scriptures that we hold in our hands are the word of God. This is one of the reasons why the words of Jeremiah are the words of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to this truth. And this is what God says in Jeremiah, verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. You see, the argument that the author of Hebrews is making is that for verse 17 to be true, there can no longer be any more offerings for sin. And verse 17 is true, that because of the finished work of Christ, God will remember our sins and our lawless deeds no more. Now listen, this does not mean when you come to faith in Christ, when you trust in him as your savior, that all of a sudden God has amnesia. It doesn't mean that he doesn't know, like he doesn't have cognition of your sins anymore, right? That's not what that means. What it means is he will no longer hold your sins against you. He won't remember them in terms of holding them against you. He will remember them no more. He will not hold them against you anymore, right? Verse 18 clarifies that because what he's saying is there is forgiveness of sin. He will not remember them. He has forgiven them. And because they have been forgiven, there is no longer any offering for sin that needs to be made because it has already been made in Jesus Christ. Listen, I know some of you may have been taught that, that, that when he says, I won't remember your sins or your lawless deeds anymore, that he somehow just completely forgets about them. But if that were true, it would make no sense of the gospel, right? No, we're, we're going to know that we needed a Savior, right? Into eternity, we're going we're gonna to remember, we're going to remember that we were sinners. But we will see Jesus and we will be free from shame because we will see that he paid the debt on the cross fully and completely. Right? We're not going to be in heaven wondering, now why did Jesus have to die? I don't remember sinning. What was this all about? No, it's going to be an eternity of worshiping and praising Jesus for his finished work, for him taking our sins on himself and completing the work in our place. So when it says that God will not remember our sins, it means he will no longer hold them against us. And because he will not hold them against us, because there has been forgiveness, we no longer need any offerings, any sacrifices made for sin. It has come to an end and Jesus has sat down at the right hand of the Father where he right now, this very moment, is interceding for us. This is the glorious truth of the gospel, brothers and sisters. 
And this is even what we are celebrating in this Christmas season. We talked about it last week as we, we saw that it is a body that was prepared for Jesus so that he could lay down his life. And so as we celebrate the birth of Christ, what we are celebrating is that a greater high priest has come, a greater sacrifice has arrived, who is able to finish who was able to finish the unfinished work that had existed for uh, centuries and for millennia before this point. But Jesus comes and with one sacrifice on the cross, he finishes the work and he is sat down at the right hand of the Father so that we can be at peace with God. This is the good news of the gospel. May it fill our hearts and our minds and our lips this Christmas season. Use this season as an opportunity to speak the truth of the gospel to those around you, to your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends. Glorify the name of Christ this Christmas season because he is the great high priest who has finished the work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of Christ that stands in our place. Father, your mercy to us is overwhelming as we reflect on the thousands upon thousands of animals that were slaughtered for hundreds of years and thousands of years in the history of Israel. It is an overwhelming image, and yet it makes the glory of Christ shine all the brighter because when he arrived, when he laid down his life, it only took one sacrifice. And in that moment of him taking your wrath on, on himself in our place, laying down his life. No one took it from him, but he laid it down of his own accord. When he laid it down, he declared that the work was finished and he rose from the grave to prove it. And so, Father, I pray, I pray that you would help us to, to rest in the truth that Christ has finished the work that we have been perfected for all time by the work of Christ. And yet at the same time, Father, I pray that this truth would drive each and every single person in this room to the pursuit of holiness in our lives, that we would be sanctified, that we would become more and more like Jesus by the power of your spirit at work within us through the truth of your word, through the gathering of your people each and every week. Father, may Christ be glorified in our hearts and on our lips throughout this Christmas season. May we make much of him in this church together and individually in our communities. And we pray all this for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.